Okay? Let's pray and ask the Lord's blessing. And you'll need your Bibles. We're going to look at a couple of texts here too. Let's, let's pray together. Lord, we bless you for your meeting with us and our worship. We thank you that you do inhabit your praises and that with joy we could make our voices lifted up to you as the God who is always at work. And our Lord, now we pray, we want to be instruments in the Redeemer's hands. We learn today that your people have more power in Christ than we can ever imagine. And not a little of that is what we're going to be covering in this class. So teach us, we pray, not to be afraid of the word confrontation, uh, but to understand it properly and then to begin to do it for the good of others and for your glory. Amen. 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 Okay, I want you to turn your Bibles to Leviticus 19 and verses 15 to 18. My guess is you have never, if you've read this, I hope you have, you've not given much thought to this assortment of words in Leviticus 19. And they're all, they're all connected, they're all important. Leviticus 19, beginning at verse 15. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, third book of the Old Testament. You shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great, but in righteousness, that is doing the right thing, shall you judge your neighbor. You shall not go around... Now, notice these are all connected. You shall not go around as a slanderer among your people, and you shall not stand up against the life or the blood of your neighbor. I am the Lord. Now, notice the next verse. You shall not hate your brother in your heart. But you shall, and I don't know where the ESV got reason, frankly, from this. The word, it's literally the word rebuke twice in the Hebrew, which means you shall surely rebuke your neighbor. When you, when you give a word twice, it, it, it enhances it. Okay, with your neighbor, lest, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. What an interesting array of, of exhortations here. And then in Ephesians, and, and you probably want to leave your Bible open to that text in Leviticus because we're going to go back to it. But in the book of Ephesians chapter 4, Paul actually coins a word here. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 15, after, rather than being children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes, rather... Literally, Paul says, truthing it in love. He takes the word truth and he turns it into a gerund, I believe is what it would be called. We are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, makes the body grow 
so that it builds itself up in love. And just a, just a little note here. Um, it's, we speak about ministers and elders and deacons, and, and I don't have a problem with that. Paul speaks of those who are given over to the service of the Lord's people or ministry. But there is a view of ministry that says essentially the church is the minister. The minister preaches, the minister teaches, the minister does evangelism, and all the people are like, like little calves uh, getting their milk from the mother. That view is totally, absolutely wrong. The scriptures teach that the, the church is a whole body ministry with each person using his or her gifts, and that's one of the reasons why we're dealing with instruments in the Redeemer's hands. Okay, so let's, with those, and keep Leviticus open, we're going to come back to it, and we're going to go quickly, um, but let's start with, a. we come now, this is in the chapter, the goal of speaking the truth in love. And remember, you've got these four components in biblical counseling, love, which is your heart attitude toward those you're serving, no understanding the people you're dealing with. Now, we come to the part New Yorkers love. Speak, okay? And then do. We'll come to do later. And, and we're going to take a couple weeks on what it is to speak. So let's begin with this trip. Does. This is all from Paul Tripp with a few shishko thrown in. A biblical understanding of, and we don't like the word, confrontation, which means literally to face boldly. If you're going to really be an instrument in the Redeemer's hands, you've got to learn to face people boldly. I didn't say brashly. I didn't say meanly. I didn't say harshly. Boldly saying everything you need to say in the way you need to say it and at the time. Now, a biblical understanding of confrontation. Confrontation is rooted in a submission to the first great commandment. You are to love your neighbor as your, or you are to love God with all your heart, strength, soul, and mind. From God's perspective, writes Tripp, the only reason we confront one another is that we love the Lord and we want to obey Him. Do you love the Lord with all your heart, strength, soul, and mind? If you do, you will be confronting others. And, Confrontation is also rooted in the second great commandment, to love your neighbor as yourself. And this is a powerful quotation. A rebuke, which is the language in Leviticus, a rebuke free of unrighteous anger is a clear sign of biblical love. But notice what Tripp adds. But I am afraid we have replaced love in our relationship with being nice. You want another word Pastor Shishko can't stand along with luck or the phrase my church? These are the, please, please do not use the word nice. A number of you know Roland Block. Remember Roland Block from Franklin Square? Roland Block was a deacon. He was Swiss. He was a chemist. And he was very precise. And he was very sensitive. And one day Roland... Uh, just use the word nice to, to me. I said, Roland, please, please, don't use the word nice because if you can't define it, you shouldn't use it. And, uh, and I said, if, if you can define it for me, then you can use it. T 
Two weeks later, Roland comes to me and says, Pastor Shishko, you were right. Sometimes I am, but I didn't know what he was talking about. And he said, well, what do you mean? He said, well, you said to me some time back, don't use the word nice if you can't define it. Chemist, Swiss, right? He said, I study that word, and I don't know how to define it. <laughs> okay, So please don't use the word nice. Use some kind, gracious, meek, whatever you want. But don't, don't, please don't use that squishy word. But that's the way Christians are. You know, if they interpreted the, the requirements for an elder, it would be, first of all, the elder must be nice. <laughs> that's not what Paul says. So um, he says, true love is neither idle nor timid. It is other-centered and active. That's what love is. It gives itself for the good of others. Confrontation is our moral responsibility in every relationship. Leviticus 19.17, rebuke your neighbor frankly, or surely rebuke your neighbor. The model here is ongoing honesty in an ongoing relationship with your spouse, with your children, with your co-workers, with your fellow officers, with your brothers and sisters. Okay, Those are ongoing relationships. Rather than one big moment of confrontation, the model here is many, many moments of confrontation. As a neighbor, I live in desperate need of the loving restraint God gives me through my neighbors. And as a neighbor, I am called to serve others in the same way. Illustration. What's the law to a Christian? Well, it's not the way you get to heaven. Law are road signs that tell you, don't go off this way, don't go off that way, don't speed to our... The Ten Commandments in particular are road signs as you go on your way to heaven through faith, your brothers and sisters are the same thing. They're meant to be road signs to you to help you stay on the straight path and the narrow path. Confrontation is meant to be, this is the, whatever bullet point this is, confrontation is meant to be more of a lifestyle than an unusual event. From the Bible's perspective, a good relationship always grows in its ability to recognize, confront, and deal with the truth. Okay, so so how do I carry out the truth dealing with my brothers and sisters? We fail to confront in love because we've yielded to subtle, this is powerful, subtle and passive forms of hatred. Leviticus 19.17, after saying, he says, you shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall surely rebuke your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. Wow, that means if my brother or sister is doing something that needs to be stopped, it may, it, not so much something I may not like, but it's something they need to stop. And I don't try to stop them. I hate them in my heart. That's and here's another thing, folks. You'll have people say so superficially, well, the, the, the law is about the externals. The gospel is about the internals. The law is about regulations. The New Testament's about the heart. That's baloney, folks. 
Right here, you don't hate your neighbor in your heart. Guard your heart, for out of it are the issues of life. Anyway, um, we fail to confront in love because we've yielded to subtle and passive forms of hatred. And, and rather than the word favoritism, although that is used in this text, um, resentment of people or favoritism with people based on economic, class, economic status, physical appearance, race or ethnicity, doctrinal differences, self-righteousness, revulsion over particular sins, that, that will bring a resentment of others. And you can't minister to people if you resent them. Or bearing grudges. Don't bear a grudge against your neighbor, it says. From trip, we are constantly dealing with the sins of others as they are with us. The issue is whether our responses are motivated by biblical love or by self-righteous, prejudiced, and grudge-bearing truth. In other words, you want to be a good biblical counselor, you've got to guard your heart. It is, I know this is a minister. It is so easy to let my own personal anger become what I think is the anger of God. And there you've got to just... So you pray, 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 and pray some more when you counsel. We fail to confront because we've yielded to more active forms of hatred, injustice, gossip, and revenge. And these are all mentioned in Leviticus. Injustice perverts God's system of restraint. It doesn't protect, correct, or restrain the sinner, it hurts and mistreats him. Uh, and that, that's, that's in a day that is, thinks about justice so much. What a powerful definition that is, perverting God's system of restraint. It doesn't protect, correct, or restrain the sinner. It hurts and mistreats him. And, and not to divert to it, this, folks, is our penal system in New York. The penal system in New York, by and large, is not designed to try to, to reform people who are in prison. It, it's led by a bunch of sadistic people who love to make it miserable. For, and I know there's exceptions to the rule, but that's not justice. Gossip doesn't lead a person to make a humble confession before God or others, which is what you want to do. And then revenge, very important, is the opposite of ministry. Ministry is motivated by a desire for someone's good. That's love. Revenge is motivated by a desire to harm him. We have forsaken our call to bring the person to the Lord so that he can see himself as he really is, and we have given ourselves instead to a quest to settle the score. One of the books that our officers are reading, if they haven't read it already, Bully Pulpit by Michael, uh, by Michael Kruger. And it's a double entendre. Pastors who, or lead ministry leaders who use the pulpit to bully others. And that, that's not trying to help people. That's, that's revenge. Okay. Then, we'll get to how you do it in a moment, but these are all the caveats. Confrontation flows out of a recognition of our identity as children of God. We are the Lord's. They are the Lord's. Now, you want them to be the Lord's as saved people, but they're still under the, under the power of God. 
And, and the, the situation is the Lord's. Keep reminding yourself of that. It's not about me and him or her. It's about God in this. Proper biblical confrontation is never motivated by impatience, frustration, hurt, or anger. In other words, don't be like Haman, right? But as one way, God prevents these things from damaging our relationships. A humble, honest lifestyle of rebuke protects us from ourselves. As sinners living with sinners, we need something to regard, retard the progress of sin in our relationships. Now, now let me give you a, a very basic <clears throat> illustration. There are some people, and you all, I have people like this in, in my life, and you do as well. When you're with them for any period of time, your conversation devolves into either gossip or complaining. Okay? Often about political things. Gossip or complaining. And when you're done, that conversation, and this is with a brother or sister in Christ, you feel like you need a bath. Because spiritually you do. Confrontation is a way of saying in the middle of it, something like this, brother, sister, I share your concern about these things about which we're speaking. But gossip is not helping the person, and complaining is not helping the situation, not helping us. So let's pray, ask the Lord to forgive us, and commit ourselves to rebuke one another. We do this. That's the kind of thing we're speaking about. Okay? Confrontation does not force force a person to deal with you, but places him or her before the Lord. Rebuke does, this is trip. Rebuke does not force a person to face your judgment. It gives them an opportunity to do business with God. That's critical in this. Say, say, the issue here is not me and you. This is what God's word says. And if my understanding is wrong, correct me. But if it's right, there must be change. That's what you want with everyone, doing business with God. So, biblical confrontation, this is number two, means starting with your own heart. If I don't start with my own heart, I will tend to, one, turn moments of ministry into moments of anger. Been there, done that. Two, personalize what is not personal. Three, be adverse. And incidentally, when most people say something that's critical, it's not that they're lunging at you. You happen to be in their crosshairs at the time, but don't take it personally, okay? Personalize what is not personal. It, if, if I don't start with my own heart, I'll tend to be adversarial in my approach, and I'll confuse my opinion with God's will, and we'll settle for quick solutions that don't address the heart. That's pregnant with significance, folks. That's what happens if we go awry in our dealing with others and their souls. And this is a wow quotation. Remember, God has ordained that difficult person to be in your life. Think spouse, think children, think relatives, think neighbors, think brothers and sisters in Christ. It's not a sign of God's inattention but of his covenant-keeping care. Humbly embrace the fact that the wonderful counselor, Jesus, 
is working on everybody involved. Humbly acknowledge the ways God is using this person to expose the areas where you need to grow. Embrace the fact that God can transform the heart of that person without neglecting you and vice versa. Most of all, celebrate. You are experiencing, I love this, the jealous grace and glory of God. Through you, he, God, is fighting for that person's heart. And through him, he is holding tightly onto yours. He will not, for either of you, go and he will not forsake the work he is doing in each of you. Remember, it is impossible to celebrate God's work of transformation without confessing your need far more. No one is more ready to communicate God's grace than someone who has faced his own desperate need for it. Wow. I mean, that's worth the whole book. Now, let me give you an illustration. A parent finds out, usually from a second source, that one of his or her children is quote-unquote gay. It's very painful to deal with that. It doesn't mean you just jump in and deal with it. You certainly pray about it. But you deal with it in the right time, in the right way. And what God is doing is not only working on your child, God's also working on you through all of that. And a simple way, when you pray, say, Lord, thank you for this time we have together. Work in both of us by the Holy Spirit to make us more like Christ, or something like that. And, and, and for me in biblical counseling, that's crucial. God's as much at work in me as in the person I'm counseling. Biblical confrontation starts not just with your own heart, but with the right goals. We all need the ministry, we all need the ministry of loving, honest rebuke, the word in Leviticus, because of one, the deceitfulness of sin. Sin blinds our hearts. Am I being loose in my eating habits? Am I being loose in my drinking habits? Am I being loose in my dealing with the opposite sex? Am I being loose with my language? Am I being careless with my money? Whatever it would be. The deceitfulness of sin affects us. We all need the ministry of loving, honest rebuke because of wrong and unbiblical thinking. We need one another to help us think things through. We all need one another because of emotional thinking. We don't do our best thinking in the middle of suffering, difficulty, and distress. Now, like Haman again, when he got flustered with something, got angry with something, he wasn't thinking clearly. Same thing with us. And that's so true in our culture today. And see, the way our culture thinks, if a person's suffering, a person is in difficulty, a person is in distress, the person could say the most stupid, outlandish thing, but that has to be accepted as gospel. Because this is a sufferer. This is a victim. Well, when we're in the middle of that, we're not always thinking that clearly. Okay? And then also our own view of life, God's self, and others, and the solution of these things tend to be shaped by our experience. We need the experience of others. So that's a powerful reason for community and counseling. Our loving, honest rebuke 
can be equal to these challenges only if we pursue two goals. The first is to be used as one of God's instruments of seeing in the lives of others. I want them to help them see what God sees. How does God look upon this thing? Okay, here, here's a person who basically feeds his or her soul on Fox News or cable news now, whatever it would be, day in and day out. And you start talking with them about anything, and they just erupt because of the corruption that's in the world. They're not seeing things properly, and you want to try to correct that. Um, he also, and then the second goal is to be used by God as an agent of repentance. Repentance is a change of heart that leads to a change in the direction of my life. Our goal is not to pressure people into behavioral changes, but to encourage heart change that impacts life. And there's a lot of ways you do that, one of the main reasons you do it is you appeal to their greatest good, which is everlasting life. And, and to say to them, if your heart is set on anything other than the glory of God and the glory of the Son and the work of the Holy Spirit, then it's self-destructive. And so you try to get to their heart over these things. Okay? Don't leave the gospel at... Oh, and then, and then you have been given the opportunity to see God miraculously transform people up close and personal. That's a joy in, in biblical counseling, incidentally. Okay, don't leave, we're almost done, don't leave the gospel at the door. A mistake we often make when we seek to lead someone to repentance is to emphasize the law over the gospel. And you've got to use the law at points. Somebody's insensitive to sin and you show them that from the law. But don't, don't neglect the gospel. Yet Paul says that it is God's kindness or goodness that leads us to repentance. He also says that it is the love of Christ that compels us to no longer live for ourselves but for him. The grace of the gospel is what turns our hearts. And brothers and sisters, please get that. Okay, The law will convict people of sin, it doesn't necessarily, in fact, it usually encourage them to come to Christ. And, and I've seen this in parenting, and, and too much, especially of our early parenting, was like this. Yeah, it's, it's law, it's judgment, it's regulations, it's rules. And you hammer kids with that. When even from their youngest age, surround them with the goodness of God that includes forgiveness of sins. I've told you, I think, um, painful moment. We were in family worship one evening phone rang. Margaret got it. It was a lady, um, very harsh with her children, very legalistic. It was, it was a family that had been influenced by this guy, Harold Camping. Um, you know, and, and I don't need to go any further, but it's law, 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 law. You know, here's the gospel. You're going to hell. Yeah, that kind of thing. And I remember Margaret saying to her on the phone, because they're having problems with their children, but remember, it's the goodness of God that leads us to repentance. And it was a sickening quiet. And Margaret said, I'm sorry to hear you say that. The woman said, I don't know about this goodness 
stuff. I don't know that that person knew the grace of God in Christ. So, so that's what he's getting. Again, there's a place for the law. But above all, it's the love of Christ, the love of God that constrains us. Okay, so don't leave the gospel at the door. Um, we need to remind professed believers in Christ of their identity in Christ. You can look at the text. God's amazing promise of forgiveness, the wonderful gift of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. These truths give believers the courage to examine their hearts, confess their sins, and turn to Christ. In other words, thank the Lord, Jesus is not like a Hasuerus, Okay, come, Just come to me. And, and, and then they say, well, well my life's a mess. Uh, I really need to get my life straightened up and say, no, 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 no. You let Jesus straighten your life up. You come to him, live under his lordship, and he'll do that work, okay? Um, these truths give believers the courage to examine their hearts, confess their sins, and turn to Christ. That's your goal. From Romans 8, 1 through 11, which you can read on your own, people need to hear the comfort of the gospel again and again. There's no condemnation to those who are in Christ. We stand in, this, in grace the need to be reminded of who they are in Christ and what they have received in his life, death, and resurrection. You tell them that when they profess faith in Christ. They need to be reminded that the Holy Spirit who lives within every believer combats the way sin renders us incapable of doing good. We can follow God because the Spirit gives us the life, power, and desire to obey. The Spirit is lusts against, its desires are against the flesh. And you speak about that warfare. And then from Romans 8, 12 to 17, people need to hear the call of the gospel again and again. Grace leaves us obligated to deal rigorously with the sin that grace addresses. If God was so serious about sin, Lord's Supper message today, that he sacrificed his own son, and filled us with his own spirit. How can we be any less serious about our sins of heart and behavior? Wow, that's powerful. And the ongoing work of God and the believer, on the believer's life, is to eradicate sin. As a believer, I'm obligated to participate in the Holy Spirit's, I love this, search and destroy mission. If you by the Spirit put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So let's summarize it all. First, we want the promise of forgiveness and power to give people real hope for change, gospel. Second, we want the call of the gospel to cause people to accept responsibility for their sin and accept God's call to obey. Get over this victim stuff. Everybody in our culture is a victim today. That's destructive. When you, to what is my part in this? I'm treated like a jackass. Well, maybe it's because you act like one, all right? And then lovingly, you deal with that with people. The heart that has embraced both the hope, comfort, and the obligation call can receive the honest words of confrontation. The person can see the gravity of his sin and the grandeur of God's call to obey in light of gospel truths. He's ready to live as a true child of God is someone who could be honest about himself and follow God in faith and obedience. I can't overstate that. At the end of the day, when you're dealing with your counselee, you're asking that that counselee just be honest with God. 
Don't avoid it. Don't run away. Don't put fig leaves on the way Adam and Eve did. Be honest. Really? You mean I need to confess that I'm a sinner? Yes. And far worse than you ever imagined. But I haven't been told that in school. I've been told I need to have a positive self-image. Let me give you the mirror of God's word. Every imagination of the thoughts of man's heart is only evil continually. There's none that are righteous. No, not one. That's what the Bible says. You have destroyed my self-image. I haven't destroyed your self-image. I've been honest with you about the way you stand with God. Now let me tell you about the gospel. Let me tell you the standing you have in Christ as a child of God. And, and see, folks, you've got to blast, excuse the expression, you've got to blast this secular crap out of the water. It is not helping people. It is not seeing sin being forgiven. It's not helping people with their self-image. It's rearranging furniture. Okay, anyway, that, that's... Let's see where I am. Okay. Everyone needs both sides of the gospel all the time. These two aspects of the gospel, the grace of justification, the grace of sanctification, don't stand in opposition to each other. Rather, they complement and complete each other. And then these great statements from Tripp. This is the goal of confrontation. Not to force behavioral change, but to encourage people's new natures with the gospel. We seek to open people's eyes to the full glory of Christ's grace as they see the gravity of their sin. Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called sons of God. Right? You lay that out. The gospel is what turns idolaters into worshipers of God. Get over yourself and give yourself to God. The gospel is what makes the self-righteous humble and willing to listen. Because, folks, if we're all as good as secular culture tells us they are, pray tell, why is there a good Friday? Why did Christ die? And, of course, they'll make up different reasons for that. But, no, no. Anyway, the gospel gives, the gospel gives practical courage to the fearful and discouraged and helps the weak to live with confident perseverance. But you don't know how weak I am. Jesus does. And he gives strength to the weak. But I just want to give up. The Lord perseveres with his people. He's long-suffering. See, that's what you, what you are encouraging them with. The gospel turns victims into helpers and the self-absorbed into those who love to serve. True biblical confrontation confronts people with much more than their sins and failures. It confronts people with Christ. He really is the way, the truth, and the life. Hope for change always rests on him.